Good morning, Herald. Uh, hello, my name's Tim. Uh, I'm a Herald trustee, uh, but more importantly, I am one of Jamie and Kath's absolute favourite people. Uh, and they are, of course, two of mine. Um, I went through uni with Jamie uh, back in Nottingham. Gosh, it seems like absolute years ago now. Um, and then, of course, Jamie and Kath got married in London um, and then moved to Bath to spend three wonderful years in Bath, being involved at Vineyard Bath, the church where I work, uh, before starting their Liverpool adventure. Um, and can I just say, and I, you know, I'm sure you know this by now, um, but just in case you don't, I just want to say you are so lucky to have Jamie and Kath as your church pastors. Now, I just think Jamie and Kath are pretty special leaders. And in one sense, yeah, that's kind of an obvious thing to say. Yeah, they're clearly really gifted leaders in so many ways. But like beyond their gifting, I just, I think what really makes them special is they love Jesus so much. Yeah, he's everything to them. And the way that they walk in step with his spirit is so inspiring. So I just want to encourage you to learn all you can from them, to pray for them. Would you commit to praying for them regularly? And also be gracious with them when they inevitably make the mistakes that we all make from time to time. But they are people worth following. Uh, we're very jealous for you all that you get to have them uh, up in Liverpool. So um, I know that on your very first live stream, which is a few weeks ago now, um, you heard a talk by Jay Pathak, who is a vineyard pastor in the States. Uh, and if you missed that, um, it's well worth going back and watching it actually. Like it's still on the Herald YouTube channel, so you can go back and have a look. It's just a really great 20 minute talk. Um, but there's a, a quote that he shared in his talk that really stuck with me, that we live in a culture that wants the kingdom without the king. And what he meant by that is that the Bible paints this picture of the good life, you know, of the way that, that God intended the world to be. And it calls that the kingdom of God. Uh, and in the kingdom of God, there's no racial injustice. There's no poverty. There's no sickness. There is no conflict of any kind. You know, many of the things that regardless of faith, I imagine we would all say these are things that we long to see in the world, right? But, you know, Jay argued there is no kingdom without the king. You know, in other words, we can't create a world where these things are true by using our own power, our own ingenuity and ignoring the God who came up with these ideas in the first place. But that is what many of us try to do. You know, as I've reflected on that, I've realised that it is often true for me. You know, I, I have a tendency to want to do things in my own strength, on my own terms. I wonder if the same is true for you. You know, one of the things that drives me uh, is a desire to make things better, to improve the world around me which I don't necessarily see as a bad thing, 
but it can lead to a tendency to just plow on with my own ideas, you know, trusting my own ability to get things done without first seeking to understand God's perspective, you know, how he sees the situation, and without asking him for his power and his presence in me to fulfill the task. And this morning we're gonna see what happens when that tendency to want the kingdom without the king gets left unchecked. But can I just say, if you've joined us this morning, you know, you're not really sure what you make of Christianity or of Jesus. You know, perhaps you've been invited to check out the stream by a friend. Then you have chosen a really good week to join us. My hope is that you feel as much as anyone this morning that this is a message for you. Jesus was most interested in the people who were seemingly the furthest away from him. And you know what? He was actually the hardest on people who considered themselves the most holy. Something that we're going to see in what we're about to read. So I want to look at a passage in Mark's account of Jesus' life. Mark is one of four books we find in the Bible about Jesus uh, called the Four Gospels. And in chapter 12 of Mark's Gospel, there's this moment, which is like towards the end of Jesus' life, where he shares this parable. Uh, and to set the scene a little bit, Jesus is like properly famous now in the region around Jerusalem. So he's surrounded by people, but he's kind of infamous in the eyes of the Jewish religious leaders. Yeah, he's just driven a load of people out of the temple in Jerusalem, causing this huge scene. So the religious leaders have been questioning him and, and challenging his right to do the things that he's been doing. He then tells this parable aimed directly at them. So Mark 12 verse 1 says, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. Now a quick word on Jesus' parables. Many of his parables were simple stories or pictures that he used to illustrate one central idea. But some of his parables are more allegorical. So rather than illustrating one basic idea, they contain multiple details that are meant to be interpreted in order to better understand what he's saying. Now, most scholars believe that this is one of those parables where we can read a little bit more into the story. So Jesus starts like this. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Now you may think these are arbitrary details, you know, the winepress and the watchtower, but check out this passage in the Jewish scriptures from the book of Isaiah. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Now, this is a passage written hundreds of years before Jesus about the nation of Israel. And by including these details, it appears that Jesus is saying that the vineyard in his parable represents the nation of Israel. And the owner of the vineyard, therefore, represents God. 
So he continues. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Okay, so the farmers that the owner rented the vineyard to are the people responsible for tending to the nation of Israel, for pastoring God's people. That includes the religious leaders listening to this parable. And what do you do when you overhear someone talking about you? Well, you listen more intently, right? So he's got their attention at this point, and he continues. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, in the context of this parable, this is a logical next step. Rather than paying rent, it was commonplace for farming tenants to pay the owner with a portion of the crops. Jesus then carries on. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Now, most commentators agree that the servants represent the prophets of the Jewish scriptures, messengers who were sent by God to draw the nation of Israel back to God and to warn them of what would happen if they continued to turn their backs on him. But Israel's leaders throughout the years had rejected the prophets and even killed many of them. Jesus' listeners would at this point be in no doubt as to the parallel he was drawing between their behaviour and the behaviour of these tenants. So speaking to an increasingly agitated crowd, he then says, The owner had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. No surprises then that the son of the owner represents Jesus. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Now, this might seem like strange logic from the tenants, but let's assume for a moment that they saw the owner's son and they assumed that the owner was no longer alive. Well, by law at the time that Jesus is telling this parable, if there was no living heir, then the land would in fact pass to the current tenants. So they see an opportunity here and they go for it. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. We know now that this is what happened to Jesus at the hands of the religious authorities. But let's stay for a moment in the world of the parable and ask, what exactly is it that the tenants are trying to do? You know, what's their motivation here? Why wouldn't they be content with just paying a portion of their crops back to the owner each year, secure in the knowledge that they can continue to farm in the safety of this beautiful, fruitful vineyard? Well, this doesn't look to me like they're simply trying to secure their own livelihood. Yeah, they had that security as tenants. Do you see that the issue here is that they don't want to be tenants at all? 
They're not content with working on someone else's land. They want to own the land for themselves. This is a grasping for power and authority that isn't theirs to take. And we can see this throughout the history of the nation of Israel. Yeah, time and time again, God offers his people the safety and security of living under his rule in a land that provides everything that they need. But time and time again, they reject his offer and they choose to make their own way. They grasp for power and authority that isn't theirs to take. And check this out for a sting in the tail. Jesus then asks the crowd, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, uh, in Matthew's account of this same parable, the crowd answers Jesus. But here, Jesus offers the answer to his question. Now, it's clear in either account that in the context of the time, everyone agreed what would have happened next. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, that might seem a bit brutal to us, but I mean, that's exactly what would have happened. There was no such thing as like serving a section 21 notice and waiting for the courts to get involved. The owner would have forcibly removed the tenants who had killed his son. There's no question. And as Jesus said these words, the religious leaders would have been thinking, wait a minute, did he just say, like, is he suggesting, surely, like, surely he's not comparing us to the tenants and saying, you know, and they're just trying to get their heads around it here whilst getting increasingly offended. And, and, you know, this is why Jesus is so clever in speaking in parables, because on face value, he's just telling a story. But, yeah, what he's really doing is throwing out a profound challenge to the religious leaders of the day and to us today. We'll come on to that in a second. But Jesus finishes here by saying, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Okay, so here's what I think is going on here. Jesus is saying that Israel's leaders have a history of wanting the kingdom without the king. In the same way that the tenants wanted the fruit of the vineyard without being accountable to its owner. Israel wanted the peace, the security, the provision without having to come under the authority of God's rule as their king. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders had kind of taken possession of the faith. They were using their endless list of laws and customs to suppress ordinary Jewish people and to give themselves a sense of importance and power. And enough was enough. God had sent Jesus to put an end to their selfish schemes. And this is what's so brilliant. Yeah, this is what I love about this parable. You see, in the parable, the tenants kill the son, leaving the owner to come and get rid of them. But in reality, 
Jesus was killed by the religious authorities, but death was not the end for him. Jesus came back from the grave. And what does that mean? Well, it it means that through Jesus, God opened up the nation of Israel to everyone. To be a part of God's chosen people, to enter into his kingdom, you don't have to jump through the hoops set up by the religious elite. The way to God is through Jesus and no one else. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, the person that many people reject in their pursuit of the kingdom of God or the good life or or true happiness, that person that many people reject is in fact the only way to get there. Jesus is the only way in. Jesus is the life that you are longing for. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no kingdom without a king. By rejecting Jesus, you miss out on everything that he stands for. But by accepting Jesus, you get to live in God's kingdom. By submitting to the king, we will get to enjoy the fruits of the kingdom. We get to experience peace, purpose, justice, freedom, all the things that we long for. And whilst we experience some measure of those things as soon as we give our lives to Jesus, the best is yet to come. Because the Bible says we become heirs to that kingdom. And that one day Jesus will return to establish God's kingdom over all the earth, once and for all, and to reign over all the people who have chosen to put their trust in him. So what does this mean for us today? Well, firstly, I think that there is a stark warning here for those of us who are tempted to follow in the footsteps of the tenants in the parable and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. As I've been processing this parable, I think there's something really significant here that God would want to say to the church, particularly to those in positions of leadership. We must not act as though we are the gatekeepers of the Christian faith. You know, the moment we start to act as though we decide who's in and who's out, who's acceptable and who's unacceptable, we are falling into the same trap as the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We are not the owners of God's kingdom. We are not in charge of God's church. He is in charge of this beautiful, expansive, inclusive community of faith all over the world. And the whole thing must be built on Jesus. So ask yourself, Are you treating the church like you're an owner rather than a tenant? Are you acting in a way like the church is there to serve your needs? Does your behaviour ever make it harder for other people to come into this 
this community? What might God be saying to you through this parable? Now, to those of you who perhaps wouldn't consider yourself a part of God's kingdom or, or a part of this community of the church, you know, maybe you feel like an outsider looking in. Perhaps you've been made to feel that you're not good enough, you know, that you don't belong. Well, can I just say to you, Jesus died so that anyone, absolutely anyone, can enter into this incredible life that he has on offer in his kingdom. He paid the price of entry. He was good enough so that you don't have to be. He was rejected so that you can belong. All you need to do is to place your trust in him, the one who gave it all so that you can have it all. The church should be the kind of community that models this message with integrity. Now, we're not always going to get it right, but our intention should always be to become a place where anybody can feel at home as long as they are walking towards Jesus. He is our cornerstone. He is our purpose. He is our reward. He's the one that unites us all together. And we're going to give him space to come and meet with us now. So can I encourage you just to prepare yourself to encounter Jesus? You know, words can only do so much, right? For the words to have a lasting impact, we need his presence. Jesus longs to come and meet with you now, in this moment, wherever you are, to show you his love in a new way, to challenge you, to inspire you, and to equip you to walk with him each day.